Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Elaine Pearson is the Asia Director at Human Rights Watch. She's an adjunct lecturer in law at the University of New South Wales and on the advisory committee of the Australian Human Rights Institute. Elaine is also on the board of the Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women. Today I'm talking to Elaine about her book, Chasing Wrongs and Rights. Elaine, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Working as a human rights activist is a calling not many people can imagine. In practical terms, what does it entail? Oh, look, it involves a whole lot of things. I mean, I guess, you know, on the first hand, it's about investigating human rights violations wherever they occur. That means talking to victims, talking to witnesses, gathering evidence, compiling reports. Uh, But it also means advocating with governments. So trying to persuade governments to stop the human rights violations that they're committing, Um, That involves talking to politicians, government officials um, in lots of different countries. And yeah, basically trying to get traction um, to try and prevent and stop the violations from occurring. I can't imagine what a job description for that looks like. I guess it would be quite wide ranging. I think you need to have patience, perseverance. Yeah, you need to have some courage and empathy to work on these issues. Um, Yeah, it can be quite harrowing at times, you know, talking to people day in, day out about these issues. It can sometimes be a little bit dispiriting, but I think, you know, what keeps you going is knowing that, you know, a lot of the people who are suffering these abuses um, are also at the forefront of pushing for change. Um, And so, you know, I think as a human rights activist, that is also what gives me courage. And part of writing the book was being able to share some of those stories of people that I've met who've inspired me along the way. One of your first engagements was to attend a convention for the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women which took you to the United Nations in Geneva. How did that experience shape your career? Oh, I feel very lucky that that was my first interaction um, into the sort of human rights sphere. As a 23-year-old recent law graduate from Perth, you know, I suddenly found myself in Geneva at the United Nations, surrounded by the most diverse bunch of people that I'd met in my life. I mean, I met domestic workers from Bolivia, sex workers from India and the United States, academics from the Netherlands. Um, And, you know, our our role was really to convince uh, governments and convince the UN uh, that any uh, effect to combat trafficking would only be effective um, if it also sought to protect the rights of victims. And so that's really sort of where I learnt um, about human trafficking, about why a rights-based approach was important but also why it's important to centre the rights um, and voices of those who are most affected. And that includes, you know, survivors of trafficking, but also sex workers. That convention was addressing the issue of sex trafficking, but I was struck by the story of Amala Singh, uh, a sex worker from Calcutta. Uh, Tell me about her and the issues it raised for you, particularly in determining this grey line, this line between sex work and sex trafficking. Yeah, Marla was a real character and um, she is a sex worker from Calcutta. She's a representative of an organisation of, I think, more than 40,000 sex workers that work in the red light district. And she spoke very forcefully at the UN. And I mean, she said, you know, I'm not a criminal. I pay my rent. I don't beg. I don't steal. But I see myself 
first and foremost as a worker. And her message really to the UN was that no one is forcing her to do this and that people who are working in the sex industry, they are also the best people to be at the forefront of efforts to combat trafficking, to combat the efforts of people who are being forced into it, to combat um, children being forced into sex work. And so I think that really crystallised for me that, you know, at forums like the UN, it's so important not just to have people who are speaking on behalf of sex workers or survivors, but also to put them front and centre of speaking up about how the policies impact them. And she spoke in particular about, you know, an experience when she was a child of being raped uh, by a police officer in a police station. And I think that also just, you know, made me understand the sense that police are not always seen as protectors for these women. Sometimes, you know, they're a very big part of the problem. One of the tasks at that convention was arriving at a definition of sex trafficking. Why is arriving at a definition of such a thing so important? So a definition of trafficking is really important. And so the UN protocol discussions, uh, which occurred um, just after we were in Geneva in Vienna, uh, were really central because governments were going to introduce new laws to criminalise trafficking. They were going to be seeking to prosecute traffickers on the basis of these laws. So for us, it was really important that it defined what would be the scope of the criminal conduct. So what we wanted the definition to include was things like deception, coercion, you know, use of force when it comes to adults. Obviously, for children under the age of 18, any child who is in the sex industry is, is forced. Children can't consent to that. But, you know, we also wanted to ensure that the definition went beyond just sex trafficking because we all know that trafficking and slavery can occur in other areas as well, in factories, in you know the home for domestic workers and in agriculture. So it was really important to us uh, that the definition captured these elements. Let's jump to a, another continent, to Europe. At one point, you were compelled to spend time in an Amsterdam prostitute's window. <laughs> what was that experience like? Yes, I wasn't well, I was at work, but I wasn't, you know, working the window. Um, but, yeah, I mean, to gain an understanding of how the situation in countries like Holland compared to the countries like Italy um, of prostitution is addressed, I did visit brothels. Um, and I did have this experience of, you know, sitting in the window when the brothel owner said, you know, just sit there for a minute, see what it feels like. Um, and I found it, you know, deeply unsettling, you know, to suddenly be in in that situation. But what I also did find is that, you know, those red light areas do provide some level of protection to the women who are working in the windows. So, you know, he showed me in the area in, you know, behind the window, uh, you know, where clients come in, you know, where sex takes place. You know, there's a button that women can press if they're in trouble because, you know, of, of a client. And so I think it's really important to, to remember that, you know, there are ways in which, um, you know, brothel owners or sex workers you know, really try and sort of protect their rights in that workplace so that, you know, people who are being exploited or abused um, can also seek, you know, support and safety. In all of these places, there are both documented and undocumented sex workers. What's the approach in the Netherlands to people in both of those categories? Well, the documented sex workers are the ones that tend to work in the windows where there is more of a level of safety and protection and transparency around the industry. Uh, but for undocumented sex workers, many of them are either working, you know, in completely unregulated hidden areas, um, so such as, you know, hotlines or online, 
or indeed um, on the street, but in very sort of controlled areas. So I also found myself visiting, uh, you know, what is known as the tipple zone. And it's a controlled area of street prostitution um, where, yeah, where sexual services are carried out. But again, it provides a measure of protection to the women because there are healthcare workers on site um, whenever the, the site is open. The police visit several, you know, times a day, but the cars cruising that site, you know, are not just clients, you know, often they are either the traffickers or in some cases, the the men, the pimps who are controlling those women. So it made me understand really that, you know, it's very complicated. It's very complex to have a system, I guess, that tries to provide a measure of protection to women, but at the same time, you know, is, is really quite confronting in how visible it is. It's very different to Australia where there are brothels, they're legal, but everything's hidden from view. You know, it's up off the street. Let's move to another continent. You seem to have been everywhere, and one of them is Nigeria. And there's quite a story in your road trip from Lagos to Benin with Mr Sunday, um, which is both amusing and terrifying at the same time. Yeah, it was. For me, it was amusing and terrifying um, being in that car. And, look, I mean, I think going to Nigeria, it really... I understood why so many, you know, victims of trafficking who I'd interviewed from Nigeria explained why they had no trust in the police or the authorities, because the number of shakedowns that we experienced, including specifically on that road from Lagos to Benin, I mean, it was like running a gauntlet um, of shakedowns. We were constantly having to stop the car. And at one point, you know, it's sometimes hard to know who was sort of, you know, controlling this, whether it was the police, whether it was local authorities, but this was a road crew and they had wooden poles with uh, spikes on the end, and they threateningly put these out in front of the car, forcing our driver to stop. Um, and so he begrudgingly had to pay them some Naira um, because otherwise they would have put those spikes under the car and we would have had, you know, all flat tyres. And I think this is something that Nigerians, you know, have to put up with day in, day out, like the petty corruption uh, that they face. And so this is also why it's so difficult for a country like Nigeria to tackle trafficking because ultimately it is also about addressing the corruption that exists in the police and in the security forces. It was good to know that um, while there are corrupt police, there are also good people like Mr Sunday. Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, I was travelling there with a colleague of mine from Belgium who also worked um, on trafficking, and Mr Sunday, you know, he really was, you know, our driver, you know, our fixer, but in many ways, our protector, he would, you know, find us the internet cafe when we had to send our emails. He would help sort of negotiate with these sort of difficult situations that we got into. And when you're traveling in a country like Nigeria that is dangerous, it's so important to have, you know, a trusted driver um, and trusted sort of locals to help you navigate, you know, that, that system. Otherwise, you know, it, it can be very dangerous and it can be, you know, very stressful. Let's bring the discussion a little closer to home. You visited Manus Island in 2015 and 2017 and interviewed a man known as Rahim. Can you tell me about Rahim, how he came to be on Manus Island and what happened to his family? Yeah, Rahim came from a country in the Middle East. He had to escape that country because he was an engineer and he uncovered corruption uh, within his company connected to the government. He tried to escape to another city in the same country. When that didn't work, him and his wife got on a flight to Indonesia and he, he said to me, look, I'm someone who likes to do things by the book. I was prepared to wait for refugee status in Indonesia, but my wife had health problems. She got on a boat to Australia. She found it very difficult to deal with detention in Christmas Island. So then I got on a boat to follow her. 
In that time, of course, the policy changed. Um, and so Rahim found himself alone on Manus Island. And by the time I met him, you know, he was someone who was just so industrious. He was an engineer. He was like, all I want to do is work. He had his refugee status, but he was being blocked at every turn by the PNG local authorities who were preventing him from leaving Manus Island, preventing him from obtaining employment. Also on Manus Island, you made a visit to what's known as the East Lorengau Transit Centre. That sounds like inhabitants might be on the way to somewhere. Were they on the way to somewhere? And what the difference between a detention centre and a transit centre really is? Yeah, well, the word transit was really a misnomer. I mean, I think when the refugees moved there from detention, they thought that that was going to be sort of a very short period of time. Ultimately, a lot of them ended up spending years uh, in the transit centre. The detention centre was on a naval base. It was located close to the airport. There were guards, there were fences. And for the first few years, no one could come or go from that centre. It was a very militarised form of detention. The transit centre, by contrast, people moved there once they'd had their refugee status approved and they had a bit more flexibility to come and go. It was on the edge of a town, Lorengau, and it was still guarded. It was difficult for people to enter, but we did manage to secure permission to enter the transit centre. The conditions were slightly better, but ultimately it just meant that the whole island of Manus uh, effectively became the prison for the men. Now, there are a lot of stories from that centre that you talk about in your book. One in particular was Ahmad. Can you tell me about Ahmad? Ahmad's case was unusual because, you know, many of the men who I met were severely traumatised by their experience and suffering from PTSD. Ahmad had actually, by contrast, quite a cheerful, happy outlook on life. Um, He really tried to make the best of it. He was very enterprising. Even though he couldn't work, he would do things like sell phone cards um, to the other refugees who didn't want to go to town. He really sort of shared his impressions with me on sort of what it meant for the other men to be in detention. He described it very much as they're like domesticated animals that you might see in in a zoo. They look fine. They might seem fine, but inside they're not. They're completely broken by this experience. And he's like, that is how we feel after everything that has happened to us. I'm still in touch with Ahmed. He's actually now safely in Canada. But, you know, he... Um, and Rahim, they were both so frustrated by their treatment in PNG that despite the fact that they'd done everything they could to make a go of it, they ultimately ended up returning to their home countries and they were prepared to face the consequences or to take risks to migrate again. Your book takes us all over the world, all the places that you've been and worked. Uh, You look at human rights abuses in Sri Lanka and the Philippines, but let's talk about something that's very much of the moment, and that's China. Human rights in China is a huge problem uh, from the forced detention of the Uyghurs, the human rights violations in Hong Kong, and even the harassment of pro-democracy students on Australian university campuses by mainland Chinese students, all in the context of the expanding economic and military power of China. There are some enormous challenges here. What is Human Rights Watch's role in this? And is there any real hope for progress in the short to medium term in this area? Well, I mean, I agree. It, it, you know, it looks pretty dismal at the moment with respect to human rights in China because it feels like, you know, situations are going from bad to worse. Um, but I do think it's progress that, you know, just last week we had, you know, an extremely damning report come out from the United Nations top human rights official condemning what is happening in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs as a possible crime against humanity. And that means that governments really need to band together 
to stand up against these crimes against humanity being committed. We need to see the same type of approach to China as we do to other governments that are committing crimes against humanity, like Myanmar, like the Philippines. And it shouldn't be that just because China, you know, is a very powerful country and will fight tooth and nail, that it should be able to get away with these abuses. Because we all can see that, you know, what happens within China's borders um, is also now encroaching outside the borders. And I mean, that's happened with what's happened in Hong Kong, uh, which, you know, now um, all civil society and protests have been snuffed out in Hong Kong, but also even in terms of like the harassment and intimidation of Chinese students and students from Hong Kong abroad in countries like Australia. And that's something that I talk about from my own personal experience uh, also in the book. But what do you do in the face of, and here I'm talking about the Chinese foreign minister's response to that report you just mentioned, is blunt denial. How do you combat that kind of approach? Well, I think you combat that approach with facts. And the fact is that, you know, he may be repeating Chinese government lines and propaganda, but what is happening in Xinjiang is systematic, arbitrary detention that may amount to a crime against humanity. And so there needs to be accountability where international crimes uh, are being committed. So I think it's about confronting those lies uh, with the facts, because if we don't confront those lies, then we will continue to see them being propagated. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite worried now about what we're seeing in terms of like the inflammatory rhetoric on Taiwan um, and what that will mean, you know, particularly for this region in the coming years. As the Asia Director for Human Rights Watch, what is Human Rights Watch role in this? Yeah, so as Asia Director, I cover um, a region spanning Afghanistan to China, all the way down to Australia. Our role is to investigate human rights abuses wherever they occur, to expose uh, those abuses through our reports, through um, the media, and to lobby governments for change. So we have a number of governments that are particularly problematic in our region and that are taking up a lot of our time. But I think it's really important that we also partner with civil society activists who are raising these issues either in country, sometimes increasingly in exile, to really hold those abusive governments to account. Surrounding all of this work is the problem of communication. And now that would be one of the biggest challenges I imagine you would face. How do you work through those communication problems when there are so many countries that you're working with, so many languages to confront? Yeah, well, we have a really stellar team of researchers who tend to be on the ground in the countries that they cover where that's possible. Obviously, some countries like North Korea, China, Afghanistan, it's no longer possible to have staff on the ground. But they are covering those countries. They speak the languages of, of those countries. And we try as much as we can, not only to publish materials in English, but also to publish them um, in other languages as well. So, you know, communication is difficult. We use email a lot um, because we're all working in different time zones. You know, we're constantly around the world. But I also think with the pandemic, it also showed our ability to transition from an organization that, you know, is very much sort of out there doing work in person to changing the way that we communicate, to doing sort of the Zoom and the online meetings instead. Increasingly, we're using new technology as a tool in investigating human rights violations in places where we don't have access. So things like satellite imagery, for instance, uh, digital verification techniques, uh, scraping data off the internet in order to verify or document human rights violations. And I think that's going to be a tool of human rights activists in the future. I was wondering what advice you might offer to somebody who might be considering a career in human rights as an activist or as an advocate. 
So my advice, I guess, to, to young people who are interested in this field of work, and part of the reason why I wrote this book is I wanted to share something of my own personal story, I think is to, you know, learn as much as you can, read as much as you can, find an issue that you're passionate about, that you want to get involved with, try and get field experience. And that might be volunteering for a local refugee organization. It might mean moving to another country to support a civil society organization. But I think getting those experiences, um, getting experiences also to, to write about human rights, whether it's for a blog, whether it's for a newspaper, you know, all of these things I think are really sort of good uh, initial steps you can take to, yeah, to, to sort of identify if this career is for you and to also get a bit of a, a taste of the work and see if it's something that, yeah, you enjoy and, and want to do long term. And it's potentially dangerous work too. Uh, how would you, uh, I guess, advise people on approaching that aspect of this work? Yeah, I thought about whether I should share some of those more dangerous stories in, in the book. And in the end, you know, I put some of them in there. You know, I have unfortunately had, yeah, experiences in, yeah, civil war zones of, you know, being used effectively as a human shield on a passenger bus um, through the mountains in Nepal, uh, going through a rebel area with the members of the Nepal army on my bus. Steps always need to be taken to mitigate risks. And, you know, my organization, Human Rights Watch, is very strong about that. Whenever we are preparing to send someone into a country where there are risks of arrest, of detention, of torture, not just for us, but also sometimes the people that we are interviewing, the people that we are talking to. We need to take every step possible to try and mitigate those risks because we don't want to do any harm through our work. And so I you know, can't stress that enough that that is something that is really important. Um, and I think I do share stories of you know, how even the work that we did here in Australia, um, working on Ethiopia, Sometimes, you know, we do need to be attuned to the risks that that can put, you know, members of someone's family in another foreign country to and to take steps to to do everything we can to protect uh, individuals. These issues have local and global challenges. What can people sitting at home listening to this podcast do? How can they contribute to improving human rights and fighting systemic corruption? I think it's really important that people take action because, you know, right now we are seeing civil society defenders on the front lines of these abuses in places like China, Myanmar, Afghanistan, but even in countries like Thailand, being silenced and being threatened. So here in Australia, we can raise our voice for those individuals. We can contact our government and ask our government to speak up and to raise these issues with those governments. And we can ask our government to take other steps, for instance, targeted sanctions against human rights abusers. So I think it's very important that our government knows that people are concerned about human rights issues, that people want our government to protect human rights. And I would encourage people to also support human rights defenders, support organisations on issues that you care about, you know, potentially support Human Rights Watch. Elaine, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Elaine Pearson about her new book, Chasing Wrongs and Rights. It's published by Scribner, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.